Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Team Human is ad-free and supported by people like you. I want to give a special thanks to some of our Team Human members, uh, Morgan Barnard, Deanie Wallace, Adam Yasmin, K.O. Sweever, and Caleb Madden. Thanks for being on Team Human. If you become a supporting member by going to teamhuman.fm and clicking on support, you'll get access to our Discord, where we do our team human salons and have all sorts of fun discussions. You'll also get access to the Rushkoff archives and old interviews with people like Leary and McKenna and, and have all sorts of fun being a supporting member of the team. You're on Team Human, conscious intervention in the machine. You're respite from the fear and loathing. You're safe space to think dangerous thoughts and say dangerous things. A chance to reconnect your mind with your heart and your body with your soul. Yes, you're on Team Human, and there's nothing you can do about it. Playing for Team Human today, journalist and author of books including Kids These Days, Shit is Fucked Up and Bullshit, and the just-released global history of Silicon Valley, Palo Alto, a history of California, capitalism, and the world. Malcolm Harris. We're moving towards uh, some real limits, not just economically, but ecologically. And that has to do with these things getting sillier, or the things getting sillier has to do with that, right? Malcolm is going to help us understand the history and foundations of the Silicon Valley mindset so we can better respond to its destructive capacity today. It's time to intervene on behalf of people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and we're all on Team Human. I'm glad you're here today. Uh, it's kind of a special Team Human uh, Malcolm Harris wrote a piece about me uh, last month in Wired, and it was really uh, moving and, and important to me to kind of see a, a journalist of that of, of this rigor kind of look at 
where I've come from and what I'm trying to do and, and where I'm going and kind of to treat uh, the journey I've been on with uh, not respect, but with um, clear eyes, you know, he really, he really got um, what it is I'm trying to do. And it meant a lot to me, especially coming from him. I've been following his work uh, for uh, quite a while. So I'm really psyched to uh, be able to introduce him and his work um, to you. Um, hopefully I can do even uh, half as much justice as as he did uh, uh, to my work. Um, but before that, finally, I'm going to get to finish um, sharing with you these uh, uh, four uh, interventions I've been working on, my four interventions to help, uh, I don't know, save the world, I guess. Um, I, I've done these, uh, I, I did these kind of, this is the the, the fifth uh, monologue, I guess, dedicated to this. It, it's five pieces about what I've been calling changing the register, which really just means engendering the attitudes and behaviors that we want to see in ourselves by intervening in the cultural landscape instead of manipulating people. So instead of some techno-solutionist manipulation of the world, we just kind of try to engender things by changing the landscape. And the first three interventions, you can listen to them in previous weeks, they were um, the denaturalized power, trigger agency, and resocialize people. And I think I saved the best one for last. And it's really awe, how to cultivate awe. And it's because our, our experiences of collectivity, what we get when we, we get re-socialized, they engender a state of awe. This is what people are after when they attend a festival, a rave, a concert, or even a, a museum or a natural wonder. It's not just a fleeting high that we get although we get that, but we also get an experience of the dissolution of self and a sense of connection to everything else. It's awesome and real, and it's also pro-social and capable of helping us mobilize to achieve a collective eudaimonia. It's an ideal from Aristotelian thought that venerates the liberated condition of universal flourishing. So as scientists are currently learning, an experience of awe makes a person more generous while also regulating cytokines for a more balanced immune response. Cultivating awe means creating opportunities for people to shift from the short-lived pleasure of an online hit, you know, just that dopamine hit, to the longer-term social openness of true connection or the, the, the oxytocin hit. Awe means experiencing oneself as part of something greater. To the current individualist mindset, that kind of connection sounds frightening. It seems like a diminishment of one's individuality and freedom. Awe and intimacy and group consciousness, they seem to compromise self-sovereignty and, and claims to ownership. You know, How do you defend your IP if you're connected to everyone and everything else? When in actuality, Awe opens us to the fuller realization that our individual and collective identities are mutually reinforcing. 
Instead of embracing awe, however, the frightened individual just panics. We build walls instead of tearing them down. I discuss the difference between panic and awe at length in my book, Present Shock. And I try to show how digital technologies, they tend to collapse narrative. And I suggested how this could lead vulnerable people toward really paranoid and conspiratorial substitutes for the linear story. And we've seen that sad possibility play out even worse than I feared. Instead of doubling down on the extractive and distracting technologies that substitute for all with shots of adrenaline, we can employ styles of education and arts that engender more of an embrace of the moment. Through experiences of awe, we build tolerance for a sustainable present. It may also mean breaking free of the styles of narrative on which we've become to depend, really, you know, stories with beginnings and middles and endings, a crisis, climax, and sleep. They train us to see that heightened state of awareness as unsustainable. And worse, they train us to believe that an ending is desirable. The hero is either victorious or vanquished, but at least the story ends and we get to know who won. Instead, if we dispense with finite games for infinite ones and embrace awe as a steady state possibility, then we can create theater and film, TV, research and education that promotes the collective dynamic over individual assessment and achievement. We encourage the creation of art and culture that is recalibrating and technology that's non-abrasive to the nervous system, stuff that engenders awe. We stop using technology on people in an effort to program them and instead provide the tools, sensibilities, socialization, and courage we need to program the world ourselves together. That's the register I'm aiming for. Not a new ledger through which to do our accounting, but a new register in which to sing the human song together. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
My friend and comrade Malcolm Harris has been studying a very different register for the past decade or so and produced a book, Palo Alto, A History of California, Capitalism, and the World, that filled in a lot of the gaps in my own understanding of the story of how Silicon Valley came to be, while also crystallizing aspects of the tech mindset I've been studying myself since the early 90s. Malcolm is an author's author, a guy who does the rigorous analysis that's actually required of us, particularly when telling a story this epic and relevant to the human condition. I hope you get as much out of this encounter as I did. The beauty of your book is that being as thorough as it is, we could pretty much talk about anything and it has a touch point to your book. So let's just talk. And this could just be a sign of my own age or stage of life or something. But I'm right now most interested in the dedication. Mm -hmm. I'm interested in your dad. Like, what was your dad like? And as you wrote, like to my father, what kind of was there something specific you were thinking that in, in the way he intersected with, with the journey that you've been on these years? Yeah, so the book is dedicated uh, to my father. He's definitely still with us. In fact, oh, he's great. You know, in his late 50s. He's a, <laughs> a relatively young guy. <laughs> yeah. Also a, a child of California, grew up in the Bay Area, which is sort of how I ended back there. So insofar as, you know, we're part of the same historical project of California settlement that like trying to understand my history is also trying to understand his history. And so it's for him in that way. He helped me a lot Mm. with the project, especially with the fact checking. He caught things that like no one else would have caught because he grew up as a hacker in the Bay area, you know, in the eighties, you know, I called national semiconductor national to be sh- for short. And he said, right. we'd never call it, we would never call it that. We'd call it, it would be national semi, you know, or right. like, stuff like that. Like you know, a Broadway like old, show. It's like, it's like, hacker like, you know, terms right. and stuff. Yeah. Like whether you have those shorter things, like if someone called like, instead of saying Les Mis, they said, oh, you know, we saw Rob Lace. And you go, oh, yeah, no, yeah. we would. No, no. Yeah, yeah. That's not how, that's not how you say it. <laughs> so like, and getting some of that stuff wrong wouldn't have been the end of the world. Right. But like, it definitely makes a huge difference, oh. I think, at the end of the day. For the authenticity to people who were around for it, too. I mean, because everything that I was exposed to, I mean, and I'm only, I only really know about maybe 40 pages or 50 pages, you know, well, of in the last third. It's like, oh, that's when I was, that's the part that I saw. Yeah, 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 come in. Yeah, yeah, right. And it was like, oh, yeah, that's pretty much what we saw, what what happened there. I mean, and to see those names and stuff. But was your dad, so your dad was a hacker hacker, or did he go to work for the, the companies as a hacker? No, no, he was like a, you know, teen hacker hacker because he's born in 65. So, oh, he would have been the prime age for like phone right. freaking and Yeah, exactly. Phone freaking, dumpster diving for codes and stuff, like like the movies hacker hacker. Uh, was he a raver? No, no. It's cuz <laughs> by the time he was he was married at got married at 19. Wow. He met my mom at 19, got married at 21. And then had me by 24. Right. That's how he can have an adult child in his 50s. Yeah. Yeah. Three of them, in fact. He's uh, wow, prolific. I'm, I'm the eldest. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, good for you. And congratulations on this. Yeah. So it was, a, it was sort of a tribute to that, 
to his thing. And he's like in the book a little bit, if you know where to look, because then mm-hmm. he is a, he was an IP attorney who did a bunch of like anti-Microsoft and trademark cases. So like when I talk about deep linking and the court case over deep linking and like would deep linking be allowed on the web, like that was his case. He was mm-hmm. the attorney in that. So like I watched that case from my childhood, watching it like from the the front row or whatever. So he's in that story a lot as well. So yeah, it's a, I figure, you know, mid thirties. Now I can like at the place where I can dedicate a book to my father and I uh, know. It's nice. It's nice. I remember and I dedicated my book, Media Virus. I said to my parents for letting me watch as much TV as I wanted. There you, you know, go. We're not, exactly. We're not restricting because it, it, it worked out. It worked out to everyone's benefit. But when I first found out about you, I know you did a book, but before you did this book, you wrote a big piece. I think it was in The New Inquiry about student debt. At M plus one, actually. Oh, M plus one. Right. And it was like, what struck me about it wasn't just that, oh my gosh, look at the student debt problem, but you were doing the thing that I've tried to do, which is like report on something that's like super obvious and there, but no one sees it. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? It's like there. Well, was- that's what we all shoot for. I mean, like I got really lucky with that one in that in that way. But yeah, I think that is like all cultural, economic, political commentators look for like, they want to hit that thing that everyone knows about, but that no one has like the right critical angle on. Right. Or people haven't articulated. It's like been at the tip of everybody's tongue and not an unarticulated common problem. And you put a name to it and you go, oh no, you're not the only one with student debt. This is like a big thing. And it's actually like this giant institutionalized problem you know it's (laughs) well and that's what's so crazy is at the time people forget i mean or people don't may not even know because now we're like 12 years past right this was like 2011 Mm -hmm. speaking of being old Mm -hmm. uh is that people thought student debt was good you should like get as much pile on as much student debt as you possibly can because it can only suggest that you got better education and then that education is going to turn into job satisfaction, wages, etc. And no one had suggested that maybe there was some like something bad about it was like <laughs> not a mainstream thing that people were saying that like maybe people having an average of $30,000 in student debt is not a good thing. Right. Or $300,000 debt, which as the case may be today. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the average when I was writing then was, was, I remember, like close to hitting 30. The total outstanding was close to hitting 1 trillion, I think. I'm trying to, no, it was only 800 billion at the time, you know, and it's gotten grown <laughs> so much just since then. It's pretty incredible. And we're at this very strange stalemate with it. But that piece really came out of like my political work in college around tuition and student debt and the financial crisis. Right. Which, and it was right around the Occupy time too, you know, which is like the financial crisis happened and everyone said, oh, all these people who got these loans and were hoping for real estate to go up just so that they could refinance their houses at a better rate and own more of it. I mean, it was a, an insane system that they had for people to stay in their places. It was like, oh, well, that one crashed. What's next? You know, and it was like yeah. a student loan and it still hasn't happened though. It hasn't broke. No, no. Well, we've had an interesting like couple of years where the the pandemic allowed for the suspension of student loan payments and then Biden tried to do a forgiveness and that stalled, but the the like the that suspension of payments has been a uh, 
workable stasis for both sides it seems like at this moment but like i have a hard time believing they're just gonna like turn the knob back on and they're gonna resume payments the way it used to be i just don't think there's the political will for that right or to turn it off completely either though i think you're right it's gonna be like north korea south korea just some demilitarized economic zone you know yeah well and i think that's the shape of a lot of our problems right now and how they're trying to address them are the inability of our political system to address a lot of our large social problems at the moment so anyway to this to your this magnum opus of a book you did which is like to me it's like almost like a graber kind of scaled i mean david graber scaled you know look at Something you wouldn't realize is such a big story until mm. you look at Palo Alto and go, oh, right. I mean, because we all, everyone has a, a touch point with it. Like for me, it's Institute for the Future mm-hmm. and a meeting I had at Stanford once or a bookstore here and a, you know, some Wozniak friend over there. But then when you see it all laid out and going as far back as and I'm sure everyone wants to talk to you about the Stanford method and for ra- mm-hmm. raising horses, which is almost a kind of central metaphor for the book. It's kind of shocking. But yeah, I mean, many of us had seen California as like the the end of colonialism. And mm-hmm. then they basically had to invent new territories to expand to, whether they're, you know, economic or virtual or cerebral, you know, because they saw, you know, they got to the cliff. There's nowhere else. And there's China over there. And that's kind of where it right. started. <laughs> what do we do now? You know, so they invented all these things, you know, even down south, you know, with Hollywood and all. But to start with the, the Stanford method, I guess maybe you should explain this, the Stanford method as it applied to cults. Yeah, yeah. The Palo Alto system as designed yeah. by uh, Leland Stanford and Charles Marvin, which was when Leland Stanford has to flee class conflict in San Francisco with his family and start this suburb, which he founds called Palo Alto. The thing that he sets up in this place is the largest trotting horse breeding and training facility in the land. And this is an ancient technology, of course, you know, horses uh, dragging stuff. But it was still, at the end of the 19th century, the most important technology in North America. Horses dragged boats through canals. They dragged streetcars through the cities. They dragged agricultural implements through the fields. They dragged artillery through battlefields. You know, Mm. horses were the engines of the country. And so Leland Stanford, as this, you know, avatar of capital in the West and the first disruptor of Palo Alto, says, I'm going to reinvent the horse breeding and training process. And we're going to call this the Palo Alto system and we're going to shorten the production cycle for these super fast, uh, super capable horses. And the way we're going to do that, we're going to draw inspiration from Germany. And Germany is at the time developing young children's education. They're developing education in general as a you know state institution, something that the state has an investment in producing you know the educated laborers of the future and they're starting with young children with this new institution that they call the kindergarten and so there are no kindergartens west of the rockies in the united states at this point but leland stanford decides he's going to build one for horses and so he builds in palo alto the first kindergarten in the west which is a shrunk down training track 
for horses, for colts. And the wisdom had been that you don't train young, young, young horses, uh, young yearlings to run as fast as they can because you're the odds are too great that you're going to snap a leg or snap a tendon and waste your perfectly good horses. Right. But Leland Stanford says, I'm doing this at such a large scale that I can afford to waste those horses in the interest of finding the fastest, youngest ones really early so that we can speed up this production process. And they are able, he and the lead trainer, Charles Marvin, uh, are able to do this successfully. And they're able to create very quickly the fastest, youngest horses in the world. And everyone has to, you know, salute this Palo Alto system for raising and training horses now of course very quickly after that the steam engine um and then gasoline replace the horse as the fuel and engine of the country so the palo alto system sort of gets buried in history and it's really moybridge and the moving pictures that come to stand for the technical advancements of the palo alto stock farm that motion pictures also come out of this same period and Moybridge is really good at branding and so he gets most of the like sort of credit historical memory around this process but the Palo Alto system and those like intangible values that underlie it about speed and scale Mm -hmm. and youth um, and disruption and capitalist production applying capitalist logic to new areas increasingly and eugenics even (laughs) eugenics absolutely yeah right the assumption that the adult is always implicitly present in the child and that you can tell what the fastest horses will be based on the fastest yearlings which is not exactly true it doesn't really work like that but it's a lot easier to reproduce the genetics than it is to reproduce the really expensive training and so that's like a good marketing position and so those values that set of values i think still is totally present in the area And like, if you go to Sand Hill Road and say, what's the Palo Alto, you, sir, what is the Palo Alto system? They won't know, like, they don't know this story about the stock farm unless they read like my excerpt in the Atlantic. Right. But if you you say like, okay, but if you had to guess what the Palo Alto system is, or if they tried to make something up, which they, you know, odds are they might do, it's Palo Alto. I think they would probably say something similar. Or if you described the system, they would say like, oh yeah, like that's what we do here in Palo Alto. Right. I mean, that's the whole premise of the incubator, right? Mm-hmm. You find, you pull some kid Precisely. out of college when they're a freshman, they're 19 years old, because they have some f- baby idea, right? But you're going to take a hundred of them because two of these ideas are going to work and you basically ruin 98 careers. You know, it's the same as shooting up a racehorse that's, you know, snapped exactly. his ankle. Yeah, and they said as much and they knew as much. And it's kind of chilling to read as a young person who grew up in that area to read this sort of them saying, yeah, you waste some good ones. Like, it's true, you do waste some good ones. But, you know, overall, uh, statistically, this is an advantageous way to do it. And then that's creepy. It is creepy, but it's creepy also then how, so on the one hand, so you get, it it ruins Silicon Valley. It ruins the businesses. You end up with all these children CEO founders of companies who do do the kinds of things that we see 
these adult children tech bros doing that we both kind of despise. But it also instills us all with this as a parent with the kind of the baby Einstein model mm-hmm. of child rearing. It's like, oh, there too. I've got to get, you know, get the special child Netflix genius making channel. So they're looking at these special shapes that were trained to, you know, make their brains grow specially. Yeah. Well, and a lot of that stuff comes, develops organically out of Stanford, out of the Bay Area, right? Stanford decides, especially like pretty, really relatively early to devote attention to the not just education as a practice, but education as theory and developing theories of education and eugenic theories of education from the very, very beginning. And so uh, Cubberly, who is the first head of the education department at Stanford, is himself a eugenicist, you know, from the beginning. Lewis Terman, who is the one who develops, redevelops the IQ test into a general purpose IQ test and does the California genius search where he's interviewing and testing children from all around the state and then tracking their advancement to draw conclusions about educational practice. He's a eugenicist, you know, from the same set of institutions from Indiana University as well as Coverly. So, and this stuff is pretty clearly into today, right? So then you look at the uh, Soupies, who's a student of Terman's, and then he's developing the like educational tech programs that I used when I was teaching kids at SCORE Tutoring Center yep. on Middlefield Road in Palo Alto. Yeah, I was doing Princeton Review, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's like two, three steps. Right. But then the the nightmare of it, though, that I can understand using techniques like this if we're like at war, mm. you know? Okay, so we got desperate times call for desperate measures. Let's get our babies learning <laughs> learning things. But we <laughs> are at war, right? And that's the that's the thing is that Palo Alto has always understood itself to be confronting a hostile world that wants to remove its privileges, right? And if someone wants to take your privileges, if someone wants to like take the legacy you're leaving for your child, that's war, right? That's war on you. If someone wants to move into your neighborhood and reduce the value of your, you know, seat at the local school, that's war. That's war on your family, you know, and you need to find a way to preserve these the nineteen century privileges of settlement into the 21st century and like that's hard you also have to suppress that like understanding of what it is you're doing and make it into just like you're trying your best and you're just trying to like you gotta be liberal or something in there or at least i'm randy and you know you're being true to your your inner self by not caring about the other but there's two different wars we're talking about here i mean one is yeah the war on people of color or mexicans or poor people or whoever's in the mission and yelling at you or you're throwing rocks at your commuter bus but then there was the real war right you said somewhere in there when you were talking about um hp and mm-hmm. i didn't know the history of, of hewlett packard you were saying something there was nothing nothing more genuinely stanford tech than Hewlett Packard, and then looking at all these kind of military connections, and, oh, and yeah. HP is there because of like the Shah of Iran. And I was looking, so you recount sort of our US Fed revolution of, of Iran and our placement of the Shah, and just like maybe two or three pages from where you start talking about the, what we did in Nicaragua, and Stanford 
and HP. They're involved in all these things. And all I'm thinking as I'm reading it is, oh my God, there's a reason why all these people really hate us, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not oh, yeah. It's not just that they hate our way of life. They hate what we did to these countries. I mean, that you create a really, a really clear explanation of why there's all these people from war-torn and impoverished places in Central America walking up to try to get to safety in America. And it's because of stuff that we did down there, the destabilization that we did. They're not intrinsically destabilized. Yeah. Well, and I think, I mean, Southeast Asia and Vietnam is is such a great example because it's so direct where you have, you know, David Packard is deputy secretary of defense under Nixon. He is conducting the Vietnam War. Partly, right. Hewlett Packard. He, yeah. David right. David Packard. Packard of right. Hewlett Packard. Um, and it's again, like, like saying Wozniak. You know what I mean? It's yeah. like it's. <laughs> and, people, and people then knew, you know, associated in, when I was growing up in Palo Alto, though, Packard and the. David and Lucille Packard Foundation stood for philanthropy straight up like in the area. You know, the the Jobs Foundation wasn't nearly as big at the time. It was the Packard Foundation funded everything. It was East Palo Alto charity, you know, whatever charity, anything. That's what you associated the Packard name with. But Mm. you go back into the 60s, 70s, and Packard was the villain, you know, they they chased him around the Bay Area. The left did the anti-war movement chased them and also bombed, firebombed Bill Hewlett's house. And they understood these people as uh, war profiteers and as war contractors and as war criminals. There was a, they chanted uh, Packard before Cali, referencing uh, Lieutenant Cali, who was the most infamous war criminal of the Vietnam era, talking about, we're going to get Packard before Cali. You know, they tried to effectuate a, a people's arrest of David Packard, and he flees the the South Bay, and the, the militant left issues this proclamation saying, like, David Packard is too scared. He can't even, like, stand in the city he owns. And so that's how they were thinking of, like, tech at the time. And that was a sophisticated understanding because as a result of this defeat of America in the Vietnam War, there are tens of thousands of refugees. And Hewlett Packard adds thousands of Vietnamese refugees uh, onto its factory lines in the South Bay that they are more than any other company benefits from this new labor source of immigrants. And so to watch that cycle, you know, they're using Hewlett Packard parts to build the bombs that they drop on South Asia, directed by the founder of the company, and then gather those workers, the refugees. And if they had won the war, you know, you know that there would have been HP factories and contracting factories located in low-wage Vietnam, capitalist Vietnam. Right. And so this is like as direct a picture as you can possibly get of imperialism. But we don't associate Silicon Valley with it in that way. But at the time, they really did. And so you can really see what kind of PR war Silicon Valley won since then. It did, though, because I was a kid. I was in high school in 1979 when the Altair came out Mm -hmm. and the Altair seemed, and this is just their beautiful illusion, it seemed as if it was born ex nihilo, kind of from a fledgling hippie counterculture, slightly, I mean, there are a few libertarians in the mix maybe there in the background, but it was just dudes 
finding stuff and shoving it in a metal box and here we go. <laughs> let's let's play. As if, do you know what I mean? It seemed to kids then anyway that that's when it was born, that this whole other Iran and war and history of this stuff didn't exist. Yeah, this was the personal revolution, right? And so the, instead of having to interact with like large social structures to access computing power for the first time, it was something that you could like hold and, and have in your bedroom, which right. represented something different. But it also it represented it something very... different to the military and the intelligence systems, which could do the same thing. And so the same technology that allowed you to have a computer in your bedroom for the first time allows Oliver North to run a secret government with 10 guys and a set of laptops. Right. And that history is like much less well told because it reflects less well on the industry. But it's like that's a park spinoff you know is the that produces the laptop that the uh, intelligence right. services uses it comes from the exact same place exactly or even i mean there's a guy i, I think you you mentioned them in passing you know or there's a guy named ed vigory who was the originally the direct mail head of the republican party and he gets a few laptops and all of a sudden out of a republican party out of a garden apartment in california is has you know, most of America, you know, <laughs> and, 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 and able to do direct mailing, basically able to target direct mailing to individual households based on what they know about them from collecting Axiom and Claritas and, mm -hmm. and other data. Well, and it allows for the birth of a lot of a layer of independent contracting businesses that large firms are then able to outsource functions to and undermine their legacy, mid-century legacy uh, labor agreements, which is really what Apple is, is birthed doing, right? Like that's why Xerox, and I tell the story in the book, is that's why Xerox invests in Apple in the first place. That's why Xerox does this technology transfer from Xerox Park to Apple, is not because they think Steve Jobs is such a cool guy and they want to be his friend. Like he was an asshole. What Apple was really good at was manufacturing computers cheaply. And the way they did that is by sticking them in a bunch of, you know, immigrant kitchens to get wired, uh, not through their contracts with manufacturing unions. I know the thing you picture with Apple is like, Oh, there were these like nerd, dude california's pot smoking nerd dudes in the basement maybe but assembling these things with soldering irons and signing their names on the inside of the original computer they had like their their names on there it and to read that oh no what gave apple its advantage was the extent to which they could out essentially outsource the labor to mm -hmm the poorest of poor immigrants. Yeah, I went to, into like a network of Filipina housewives uh, in the Bay Area at that time. And the, the Bay Area has always maintained networks of technically capable, underpaid uh, peace workers at this time. And so like that image sort of comes more from Atari, which really was the like early, and that's where like Wozniak gets started. Right, Jobs... Jobs got Jobs worked there too, right? Well, Jobs works there, and he, got, he yeah, he, he yes, he famously uh, got Wozniak to program Breakout right. and told him the wrong dollar amount and sort of stole from him. Right, he embezzled Woz's programming fee. Right, and then Woz starts a company with him. I mean, it's like fool me once, shame on me, right? <laughs> 
Yeah, he made it happen. He made things happen. Uh, and the Atari, famously, the Atari production lines were like they had like sexy chicks and it was they were doing drugs and like uh, having a bunch of fun, the soldering irons and stuff like young white people having a blast in the tech industry. And that was the Atari lines. Atari, <laughs> that situation is a product of like anti-unionization and like labor struggle at the same time because like Atari had started outsourcing their factories in the early 60s. It mm. wasn't like in the 80s that they start outsourcing is that there's a union drive at the three Atari factories in the early 60s and they just outsource two of them and the union drive fails and they continue. Yeah. And so like that's the and you so when the in the official business history of Silicon Valley when you're reading about the like oh the Atari production and like these tech kids making stuff on the assembly line and having fun and flirting and right yeah as we work we work 1979 or whatever yeah. Exactly. But like that that is already an outcome of the official labor movement being crushed in these places right. and like is not told as part of that foundational official story. If you read the official histories of the Bay area, official histories of the tech industry, they just don't talk about, they talk about who, you know, who wires the first one and then don't bother talking about who wires all the rest of them. And I got to give right. Michael Malone credit for his like contemporaneous accounts where he really makes sure to include that history. And I think it's interesting that it falls out of some of the, like a lot, almost all of the retrospective accounts. Yeah. Well, just like the tent village outside Facebook's headquarters today or outside Stanford, even right now. I mean, it's, that's, those are the things on the margins that we try, that we try not to look at, you know, whatever we call that uh, externalities, but there's this moment of possibility. And I guess that's, because I came up in it, I always see it as dominant, but it's turns out it was like Jerry Garcia describes the 60s. He said, oh, it happened in like over a period of two weeks mm -hmm. <laughs> in yeah, 1968. Exactly. <laughs> that was the 60s. But this this moment of of hobbyists and shareware and Eudora and and mosaic. And you know, we were we were on the back of the bus going to school, we'd share wares on five and a quarter inch floppies and the whole it seemed like we were gonna be we kids we hackers you know we matthew broderick or whoever it was mm -hmm. and you know there was this moment of of possibility with even though and i know there were the there was a sort of conflict between the visionary nerds and the real tech developers that would work itself out but we were gonna have the power with our our cassette deck and our tandy thing or our commodore and it just seemed like this cyberpunk, kid-driven, psychedelic, fractal, rave thing was going to happen. And then Bill Gates wrote this letter mm -hmm. that I've still always been confused about. I mean, I always talk about John Barlow's Declaration of Independence of Cyberspace as the turning point. But I'm thinking that's not really it. That it's this letter that Bill Gates wrote. And yeah. I'm interested to know from you, well, first, what... How did, what was this letter? Why did it work? And what would have happened if he didn't write it? Would someone? <laughs> yes. Well, so the, the, the letter to a hobbyists is, was famously Bill Gates's letter uh, to the computer community published openly. I can't remember what the publication was that published it. 
there were a few, you know, computer hobbyist publications yeah. at the time saying, stop ripping off my operating system that he had bought the rights to. He had, he hadn't written it himself. It was, it's important to know whatever, yeah. because people were already passing around the code to basic and people had been passing around codes to operating systems, uh, forever and so when he was deploying the new operating system um and had been hired to do it um that he his little little company uh micro software whatever microsoft had been selected to have the the first microcomputer operating system and people didn't want to wait for it to come out and they didn't want to pay for the extortionate price that they were they're charging for it and so someone made a copy and they'd been passing around the paper tape and he wrote this letter asserting an intellectual property right to the operating system and saying like, you know, if you're going to do it this way, then this is never going to work. We can't share. It's not sharing. It's stealing. It's really, it's the same rhetoric as though like you wouldn't share a baby or whatever. you wouldn't, you wouldn't right. steal a car. Like, well, why would you steal software? Like software costs money to develop, et cetera, et cetera. Now, of course, like Bill Gates inherits his position in life from his banker mother and attorney father. And it's not like he had, uh, again, invented the thing himself. He had paid, paid, ended up being in a place to license it sort of in the same way that Steve Jobs had licensed his buddy Wozniak's uh, programming for breakout and then made more money with it. They were clever business guys and they were asserting the value of their own business cleverness to this industry. But there is a logic to that. I mean, oh, yeah. someone I mean, spends hours making that the same as, you know, Taylor Swift spends hours writing her song. I can see why she doesn't want, you know, people just to steal it. Sure. Or, you know, those of us who write books or whatever, let's say. Right. Right. But again, like Bill Gates didn't write the operating system, (laughs) which is important to remember. So that's the difference is he wasn't saying it wasn't a claim about, you know, I did this so I should get paid. It was the importance of intellectual property ownership by capital into the future is that if you unless you were willing to respect that title, no one could get rich. It's not that no one could get paid because people and people continued to get paid off shareware into the 90s, right? Like writing software and giving it away or charging people for the disc or whatever was continued to be a way to make money, but it was not a way to get rich. And the way to get rich was to have this proprietary license to intellectual property that someone would have to pay you every time they were using. And that's how Bill Gates got rich is because every time then a PC maker ended up making a PC, they were paying his company a license fee for their operating system. And he was pretty smart about how he structured those payments so that they would pay for every CPU they produced not for the ones that actually use the operating system. And so at that point, you might as well use the operating system for every CPU that you produced. And so it became very quickly the the dominant operating system and this real monopoly position as the manufacturers themselves were deciding what kind of operating system would run on their machines. And so as they became more of a consumer object as opposed to like a, a hobbyist project, what operating system you wanted to run on your machine mattered less than which one the manufacturer had installed and which one that software writers were uh, writing their software to work on and to be compatible with. And then that this is what gives Microsoft then the monopoly in the computer 
software space, the operating system space, which again, my dad would be very careful to say that, you know, it's the personal computer operating system that if you look at server operating mm. systems, a lot of those are still open source, right? right. It's not, they didn't get privatized in the same way because the, the commercial incentives function differently. And it's not like there, therefore the server space is democratic or didn't make people rich or whatever, but it functioned a little differently. Right. My impulse is to say it's better, you know, if it's open source and Apache or whatever they're using that it's. Yeah. But, and in like, in some ways, I guess, but in some ways it doesn't really matter. Right. I mean, and then as you start thinking about it, it's, it's almost as if Silicon Valley was less about pure hacking than really just hacking capitalism. They saw that operating system and you know, certainly didn't challenge it, but figured out how do we, with tech, take over from, I mean, you kind of talk about it, that it used to be that there was like the whatever, blonde, wonderful Rhodes Scholar athlete, mm-hmm. you know, athlete, academic, superboy with great genes would get kind of chosen and become the head of the banking system or whatever. And now there's this different class of kind of smelly, nerdy people using technology to hack that economic system in order to make themselves rich. Yeah. Well, and that was the change in what the American project required from these guys, you know? So David Packard, again, is the the great example of the first kind of guy you were talking about, where he's six foot five. He's a, you know, standout athlete, very popular, very handsome. And like the Stanford administrators, basically, as soon as they see him, they decide that's the guy. We're putting on chips on him and help him start his company and really support him from the beginning. And it's actually David Packard who has to say, no, no, you really want Bill Hewlett. Like this guy, this is the best engineer in our class. Like, and because he wasn't as tall or athletic as doesn't uh, attract them in the same way, because that wasn't exactly what they were looking for. But they were dependent on that selection by public officials, by military officials, by academic officials, provosts, etc., to pick you and make you the guy who starts the company. But with the generation of the nerds, you know, the switch to Steve Jobs and Bill Gates of the world, their credentials come from somewhere very different. And they learn to use computers mostly instead of on public machines, on private machines that they get access to. They drop out of college. They don't join the military. They start their own companies, you know, with their family money, perhaps, or with uh, money they're able to wheedle out of friends and acquaintances from their actual personal networks, as opposed to through institutional networks like the state or like their university. I know. So they always talk about your friends and family round. Yeah, right. It's like, what kind of, who are your friends and family, man? (laughs) Well, and that's the question. And so you see this... uh, switch and not even just in the United States or even in Palo Alto, but around the world, a reversion to the privileges of family. There's a great book by Melinda Cooper called Family Values that has this account. Mm. And it sort of flips the idea of neoliberalism on its head, where you think that in the neoliberal age is characterized by like individualism and your like separation from larger systems and structures and the disintegration of the family. But what she argues, I think, very persuasively and something that affected my analysis, but was also confirmed with the history that I've 
looked through is that in the neoliberal era, it's family relations and family privilege that assume this increased importance that like where you're born becomes again important in a way that it wasn't in the mid-century where the way I talk about it is Rooseveltism shuffling the national deck of white men, Mm. right? So you have like privileges of place, privileges of class sort of shuffled a little bit. So you could come from anywhere in the 40s, 30s, 40s, and by the 60s be a big business guy if you were a white man. You know, it's still it's still like, you know, limited uh, range of opportunity, but it was significantly expanded. And then, but then in the next period, you have a reversion to the continuation of family privilege in a way that uh, wasn't there before. And that is a, a reversion. Right. And the same old, you know, use of immigrant labor, you know, when you talk about Apple, that their success was basically, well, get people to work harder than they should, either Mm -hmm. because they're essentially enslaved, you know, sweatshop workers, or because they're in a cult of of personality, and you somehow motivate them to do that, you know, or Amazon doing it when they now documented, you know, piss bottles around their (laughs) warehouses. Well, and that was the, and that people understood that people from Silicon Valley knew that. So, like, I grew up hearing stories about the Wozniaks and about jobs. And, you know, Steve Wozniak was the one who built things, and Steve Jobs was the one who yelled at everybody to work faster. And that's like, that's what I I grew up hearing from like very, very, very young. It's like, don't, whatever, whatever you hear from, you know, (laughs) Palo Alto propaganda or whatever, always keep in mind, Wozniak built things, jobs told people to work faster. And it's very funny watching the, and I would, this is like a a pre iPod, you know, resurrection of Steve Jobs brand knowledge. And so then when he comes back and becomes this avatar of 21st century capital or whatever i had still always known him as the guy who yelled at people to work faster and that's really who he was and if you talk to people in the bay area who knew him or were closer to his actual work as opposed to the aura or the like wealth or the brand they remember who steve jobs is and steve jobs was a a character of the 80s you know Right. But then also true to the, you know, Palo Alto method, you snap a few tendons, there's a few teen suicides because of your social media, a few, uh, uh, you know, Chinese laborers jumping out of windows. That's sort of the, kind of the cost of doing business in, the, in this way. And that's what Steve Jobs personally said about the suicides uh, in the Foxconn factories is like, well, you know. It's not that high. Like the rate isn't that high. You know, sometimes people kill themselves. There are a lot of people right. who work there. You know, right? What you gonna These do? are few and far between. Exactly. A few people are going to kill themselves anyway. Yeah. There you have it. Um, which, of course, you would never say. And I got like sort of yelled. Well, people have been very critical of me of juxtaposing that line with the suicides of children in Palo Alto, as right. if they would have a separate logic for their own children than they would for other children. And that's not true. It's a structural logic. Like, I know you might love your own children more than you love the 19-year-olds who are putting together iPhones or whatever, but your structural relation to them is going to be the same, right? It's still going to be this Palo Alto system where it's like, well, if we want the largest productivity out of the aggregate, that means we got to burn people out. Right. On either end. Right. It's like, Absolutely. 
You know, it is just like when you look at the carbon footprint of a Tesla or something, there's the before and the after, you know, <laughs> it's uh, you're not going to say, well, one is more one is more important than the other, which, well, we do, though. Of course, it's little white, white Silicon Valley lives matter more than Chinese factory lives right? <laughs> in, the, in the eugenics of the model. Yeah, well, but in theory, and then you juxtapose the, the suicides and realizing these are the same age kids killing themselves mm-hmm. on literally the same days, you know, that. And they hadn't appeared connected to me at the time. But looking back now and trying to understand both phenomena at the same time, it's impossible for me not to yeah. see them as connected. You know, and, and there was a moment when I was thinking, well, maybe these tech bros are not innocent, but they're victimized by a system that they can't see their way out of. You know, you have this the 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 quote i guess it's a famous quote from from Travis Kalanick but i had forgotten mm-hmm. about it you know about why he had to take so much investment money and he said it's not my preference but it's required when the money is available and it's really interesting cuz i remember when i saw um Evan Williams who founder one of the founders of Twitter on the cover of the Wall Street Journal and when they had their IPO they put each of the founders there with the number of billions they had made that day on their under their face and it was like 4.3 billion was right under his face and i remember thinking oh this poor guy is screwed right how is right. he going to make 100x or 1000x that with this 140 character messaging app and of course he couldn't they couldn't it's impossible but then when I see that Travis is saying, or Kalanick, this is the guy who, who started Uber, it's not his preference. that there's It's required when the money is available. I guess because what? Because if he didn't take it, then someone else will take it and then have a bigger war chest? Yeah. Well, if so, if the Saudis come to you and say, we want to put $5 billion into Uber, and your answer can't be, oh, no, we can't scale that fast, because then they'll go to Lyft and say, okay, fine, we want to put $5 billion on Lyft. And if they say, okay, we'll take it, we will scale that fast, then they'll wipe you out. And so you got to keep up this arms race, and that's how you end up being the fastest raising company ever, et cetera, et cetera, is because you're trying to do this arms race. And that's an old model. Like, that goes back to at least the dot-com era where they were doing the same thing. And this idea that you'd have network monopolies was the form that these businesses would, would take. And so whatever you're spending to establish that network monopoly, you're going to clean up at the end of the day. And that the markets understand that and will finance that narrative arc, right? That like right. they know that you can get that or at least will bet on the odds that you will establish that. Yeah, and how few do though? It's like so you'll be the iPod or the Amazon or the eBay or whatever. Right. There are very few that you can actually point to and say like they they did this and then are able to transition that into operating profits that justified their valuation in the first place. Right. But then there are like but then you look at something like Instagram where Facebook's acquisition of Instagram really saved that company, just period. Like you can look at inst- that Facebook and say, like, if if they hadn't spent that billion dollars, which way, way, way overvalued Instagram, like they would have been fucked. Like they really needed that new platform. Right. So, and I think that justifies it moving forward. Yeah, right. They bought a bunch of stuff, but I bought Zynga too, which right. was a yep. disaster. Nope. It's true, right? So, uh, but yeah, it could have been the thing that saved them, though. You know, you don't know. So, you, but the hit rate was good enough, at least to get them to where they are at the moment. 
And the other interesting thing is, I mean, it's a, a lot of, of ink or, or squid ink or whatever gets spilled in a digital age has been spilled on a lot of the Silicon Valley guys taking enough acid or going to Burning Man enough to see the error of their ways. Mm-hmm. So you get the whole you know, humane technology movement and, and Roger McNamee and Tristan Harris and the other guys all going, oh, mea culpa, mea culpa. You know, the, we, we were so good at doing this and we've got to undo it. And in the Wired piece, the profile that you did of me, there was one clause where you mentioned social dilemma and you just said insipid. You said the insipid (laughs) documentary social dilemma. And I wanted to unpack that because I have a hard time explaining why that I feel bad saying that I don't like that movie and what it's about and all, because at least it's helping make people a little bit more media literate about the impact of social media on themselves. But there's something that really bothers me. And I'm wondering if you can articulate why is it insipid? (laughs) So I can make the the critique that you can't make as the uh, competitor. I guess. Yeah. They don't have a a structural understanding of capital and class conflict as the conditions for the origin of these kinds of systems. And so if you don't have that kind of understanding, then it doesn't really make sense why people are doing the things that they do except to say that they're uninformed or making a mistake. And so... If people are uninformed or making a mistake about the internet and how the internet works and how social media works, then informing people um, will allow them to correct that mistake and the markets will respond and we'll be able to fix the situation. And maybe those those efforts themselves are not profitable, you know. Maybe that maybe some of them are. Maybe you start your like gray screen app for a dollar or something, you know, whatever, like maybe you can make money off this situation, but maybe it's a nonprofit. Maybe this is a sort of like, you're going to embed these market phenomena back in society through some non-market thing. And you can get your tax break for that. And this can be your like activity that's ancillary to whatever tech thing. And the problem can solve itself, right? Because that's what these tech people are saying when they say they want to solve the problems that they've created that they can write and un- and launch a program that will fix it. Right. They just need to, to debug it. They got to update the, the software for this. Tune the algorithms for B instead of A, right. and then we'll be okay. And that's wrong, right? And so until you have a deeper understanding of what the problems are, it's hard because also when you say, when you tell a capitalist that like, oh no, the problem is capitalism, then they hear like, oh no, the problem is you personally. And they say, well, I don't think the problem is me personally. I want my house. Sure. It must be something else. Uh, and it's, they're right insofar as it is not them personally. Like the problem with capitalism is not a personnel issue, right? It's not like that the capitalists are bad per like as people. And that if we replace them with other people, we would be in a, a better situation. Right. Or at least it's not just that they're bad. Yeah. Some people. of them are bad, certainly <laughs> bad. Yeah. But when people say like, oh no, like I'm a good guy and I have good intentions. And so your critiques don't apply to me because I'm not like Elon Musk or I'm not like those bad capitalists. I want mm. good things for society. I'm not just concerned for, for myself. And that's not the point. Right. And so you can say like, that's not actually their response. So like, that's not uh, when you say that and you say like, oh, I'm trying to do something about this, actually. 
my intentions are different and my focus is different than the people that you're talking about. That's not actually an answer to the problem. And so I'm still I'm still waiting for the rich tech person who's going to say like I understand that this system is fucked and I understand I'm listening to the people who are telling me, you know, how this system is fucked and I've studied it and whatever and like this is how I'm going to engage with that like struggle to come up with something different and I think there are ways to do that. I'm excited maybe for people to start trying to find some of them out, but the like donate to my nonprofit or like respect me because of my nonprofit, because I'm different than the other billionaires or whatever is not the way to get there. It's like, we need you, if you want to show leadership, then you need to like learn a little bit more about what you're talking about and not assume that your position as a entrepreneur or a rich person enables you, gives you some position of insight. And so I get approached by, a fair number of these kind of like alternative thinking tech people or whatever who set up institutions to support their thought and they find people who agree with them about like, oh, the way we're going to do it is we have some sort of like co-op blockchain infrastructure and like Like this is the way to get out. We're going to make a blockchain for multiracial democratic (laughs) collaboration. Yeah. yeah. Or even like, uh, you know, I'm informed by the history of Georgism and like I've got this idea of here are the five things that are wrong with society and here are the five tools we're going to use to fix them or whatever. And it's like, that's idealism. The, The idea that you can just like think about what's wrong with the world and then think about your programmatic fix without engaging in the history of social struggle and the like current practice of social struggle is not just like arrogant or like interpersonally off-putting or like going to make it hard for you to work with other people but it's wrong and like you're starting from an incorrect place and it's frustrating for me when I encounter those people and they assume that I should have some kind of like respect for what they're doing or their project based on the fact that they have enough money to do it as a project because it is in line with some very rich person's thinking. Right. And that's not like, that's not where legitimacy comes from in my mind. And that's too bad that we have rich people who want to do those kind of projects and people who uh, enable them as opposed to saying like, Oh, you, you've got a bunch of money and you want to do something productive. Like here are some projects that you can support that have no money (laughs) and that are not going to make you look good at all. I've done that. I've been at those meetings and I mentioned this one, that one, this one, that one. And they go, well, if they're any good, why haven't I heard of them? Or even like you know? <laughs> there are things that like you're not going to want to take credit for because then people will get mad at you because these are right. controversial efforts. And so you can't like do a thumbs up. And they're not going to like you even just for giving <laughs> you money. Like, right. they, might, they might like you if you like hang out and are cool despite you having a bunch of money. But like just donating is not going to make them think you're cool or think your ideas are right. And like, you got to, you got to read the books like everybody else. Right. Yeah. I don't like, at the same time, I don't want to be like, if you happen to be the guy who, I read like the New Yorker article about the guy who 
is started Duolingo. Yeah. He sounds like a fine guy, right? He's like, I invented CAPTCHA as an academic because it was a cool answer to this interesting problem. And then that like accidentally made me like a super duper rich guy. <laughs> and then I sort of like did that same thing where I was like, it would be cool to have a program about learning languages. <laughs> and then again, that made me like a super duper rich guy. And but like I have positive intentions towards the world. It's like totally believable. I can absolutely see how that could happen to a person. And I don't think then like because your class position is now capitalist that you are evil and like some mask falls on your face and your intentions towards the world become sinister at the same time like you got to be aware of how of the like your social context and how your like resources are being channeled into to flattering yourself and so you still have to like try to think objectively about society and your role in it even at the same time as you know that like you're not a bad guy or whatever yeah I know. And I was thinking there's got to be a way, you know, you go to Burning Man and sit with them in their ayahuasca circle and there's like, we could give them a different kind of counseling. (laughs) So they re-enter, you know, they re-enter understanding that it's tricky. But before we go, I know we're like on an hour here. I knew about Palantir and Peter Thiel, you know, Mm -hmm. or Thiel, whatever. And, you know, how he made this big, uh, uh, it's basically like a version of Axiom or Claritas, uh, 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 but it's data on everything and everyone for kind of defensey, security, scary, anti-terror surveillance ways. I mean, I knew about that, but I hadn't really understood sort of that, how the constellation, Mm -hmm. I don't know if you can explain it, of Peter Thiel and like Michael Flynn and then Curtis Yarvin. And how how does this all kind of fit together? You know, it's like, it's easy to say, oh, Thiel's a vampire fascist, but right. he may be a vampire fascist. Well, yeah. Uh, well, I think he's still figuring it out. I mean, I don't know. He should read this book and, and learn about yeah. Herbert Hoover and like think about what his, his place is uh, in history. Because I think he doesn't have a great sense of it necessarily. But he is, I think... Unlike a lot of his peers, he does have a sense of history as something that exists outside of him. Right. And he reads philosophy. I mean, he's he's trying to understand yeah. and he's trying to be a good, essentially a good Girardian Catholic. Yeah. I mean, it's based, like it, it really comes down to like, I think he actually believes that the world exists outside of himself, whereas some of these other like tech people really do believe that the entire world is a projection of their own consciousness. Right. And someone like Elon Musk just like straight up does not believe that the rest of the world exists. And that's how mm-hmm. he operates which allows you to do things like straight up gamble with tens of billions of dollars from the Saudi Royal family and then like wake up and do it again, which like I would not do. And someone like Teal is much more like plays the same game, but does it much, much more cautiously. And Mm -hmm. he's constantly hedging. And I think it's very interesting that he has for a while now looked to the federal government and the security services as a source of growth and as clients for his businesses, which I think is is smart and shows the direction of the tech industry. And it shows his knowledge of the tech industry a little bit more than everyone else's, that it's not just about advertising technology and scams or whatever, but that there's a geopolitical historical project here that is about America and the West and Anglo-American eugenics. 
that he's very invested in, like literally and uh, figuratively. And so I talk a little bit about what that network looks like, what his financial network and political network and business network uh, looks like. But it's there are a lot of unknowns. Uh, it's deeper than we we think it to be at any given point. But if you look at like lots of small magazines that have popped up uh, and stuff, it's a joke that, oh, Peter Thiel is funding this or Peter Thiel is funding that. But like Peter Thiel is funding a lot of things in the same way that it's sort of a joke that like George Soros is funding this, George Soros is funding that. Uh-huh. And, but then like some people really do get checks from George Soros. And like if you work <laughs> for the public defender's office in a bunch of states, for example, you get like a Soros bonus that comes from donations from <laughs> George Soros. Like those things are real. Like the Thiel money is, is also real. It's a real thing that's happening. And it's not does not have an equivalent on the left. You do not have the same sort of entrepreneurs who are saying, I'm going to invest in a future world, a, a particular valence of the future world. I'm going to like throw my hat over the wall and saying, like, this is what's going to happen. And I'm going to use finance and my resources to bridge that history. But the history that he's bridging us to, the future that he's bridging us to is a really fucking scary one. So people should keep their eyes open. And when I, you know, a big turning point in the book, and I think a turning point for the industry, more than any AI bullshit, crypto, web three, whatever, is the meeting Teal sets up with the other executives and Donald Trump, where he gets everybody in a circle, meets with Trump, and then suddenly all these companies are applying for prime military contracts in a way that they never have before after meeting with Trump and they are Mm. continuing to do so into the Biden administration. And that represents a real change for an industry that had been subcontractors the whole time for a hundred years almost. So people should keep their eyes on that teal verse. It is a joke, but it's not just a joke. There's really some, something there. Right. I mean, well, there's the jokey part, which seems jokey with like the urbit and, you know, funding all these weird little occult projects and kind of slightly alt right, bizarre cultural anti-woke things there's that but i was kind of surprised i guess i had always thought of michael flynn as just some kind of military idiot dude who got in trouble with trump and all but when you see that that he was actually you know deeply involved in palantir yeah, well, he's an Obama appointee first. Remember, it's not it's Obama right. who promoted him, and Obama was the t- was the most techno solutionist president yep. that we had. You know, a technocratic dude. But then uh, Obama was scared enough of Flynn. To the one thing he told Trump was, "Watch out for this dude." Mm-hmm. I, you know, not just Flynn, but Flynn is one of the members of the military command that Palantir is able to cultivate personally and say, like, you know become familiar with our technology, get used to it, get dependent on it, promote it as you advance through the ranks. And this has been a somewhat successful strategy. We'll see how long Palantir is one of those tech companies that could go either way. Either it's like Mm. a very functional and scary military spy tool, or it's a scam. And it's not clear sort of like which side of the line it falls on right now they might they might still not know right that's also oracle that was also theranos you know that's a right it's a good way to make money so right palantir but the, but like and and also exists which is his physical they make that he's invested that teal's also invested in that makes physical defense solutions that makes towers and walls and drones and shit 
Right. But I mean, you, you did, you, you had a version of the, uh, uh, what's it called? Rocco's basilisk, mm -hmm. you know, which is the famous thing, like basically be nice to AIs now because when they're in charge, they're going to kill you if you are not nice to them now. And they you know, are probably <laughs> already in charge. And this is probably just a simulation to see if you would be nice to them. Right. And if you're not, they're going to torture you forever, which seems stupid. I, if I was not, I'd just kill you, you know. But anyway, they'll torture you forever. But then there was a version of this that someone posted on Reddit. It's like that Palantir is that. Yeah. Teal in particular is the basilisk and that you have to put, give all your money, invest all your money in teal. Right. Now, while I'm sure you don't believe in that as our, our probable future or as a strategy for uh, survival <laughs> in, the, in the coming decades, I am wondering after having kind of studied and chronicled this big sweep of history, I mean, I find the the best things about about doing history for me, one of them is it kind of puts a present moment in a in a perspective. Mm -hmm. I mean, do you feel like we're moving into some kind of actual critical event? Like, are we over the event horizon into some chaotic, strange attractor, or are we kind of just reverting to the mean that this is the way civilization has 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 always been? Unlike David Graeber, I don't have a a like. 5,000 year historical arc uh, in my head. Uh, and so I couldn't give you the full, those size mm. cycles. Um, I, I like limit my understanding of history to the last 200 years, centuries. right? Yeah. Where I've actually studied it. <laughs> so within that, I think we're seeing, we see both like cyclical and univocal tendencies. So you definitely see cycles in terms of how we perceive the like tech leadership. And maybe those cycles are going faster and faster, right? Where like the bubble pops and reinflates very, very quickly. And I think we've seen that with like crypto and AI, for example, right? Where the bubble pops and then immediately we have to have a new bubble as soon as that one's gone or else the economy will break down. And so we have to have like a new magic story immediately. And you can even just like copy and paste the old story into the new story. In fact, the new machine will do that for you. You could have the chat GBT uh, explain why mm. it replaces Web3 or whatever. So that's definitely a like cyclical bubble machine or whatever. But no, I think we do see we're moving towards uh, some real limits, not just economically, but ecologically. And that has to do with these things getting sillier or the things getting sillier has to do with that, right? And I think that's the reason you saw the Silicon Valley Bank right. run is that the bank is now finance's job is to produce the profits, not just direct the investment into profitable areas like airplanes or radio or agricultural land or whatever, but to actually generate the profits itself. And so that means it can't play this important role, which is to coordinate that investment and absorb risk for the milieu and instead creates that risk. So, We'll see. It's interesting. We're definitely heading towards uh, something, moments of crisis and conflict. And I think the philosophically minded techno-capitalists think that as well. And so you see uh, all sorts of crazy rhetoric from them and the like open right-wing rhetoric from people like Musk. But even more important than Musk is I think Larry Ellison is like way scarier than Musk. That like mm. Elon Musk is kind of frivolous, but like Larry Ellison is a top 10 rich people who's been a CIA contractor for 40 plus years and is now talking about 
election denialism and like seems to have gone all the way. So that scares me as much as Teal, as much as anyone is Larry Ellison for sure. Right. Because they must, I mean, cause he's not an idiot, right? So he doesn't actually believe in the election denialism, but he must actually, he must believe that some sort of authoritarian leadership has to be put in place for him to maintain his, his empire. Yeah. Uh, I think like philosophically, these people have moved off the idea of democracy, which is, you know, concerning. It's not, a, I don't right. think they had a deep commitment to equality of all peoples or anything or like uh, economic democracy for the world before that. Right. But now they are dropping the sort of liberal veil to like talking about. And when you talk about, talk to these people, you know, privately or whatever, the like conversations they have, they're, fully round the bend a lot of them about francoism or you know whatever they're fash curious uh, at least very commonly now i think in san francisco and those milieus they like us are seeing what happens when a system is uh, accelerated at scale but basically as you would put it like a scraping technology working at mm-hmm. scale so they see the here comes everybody of digitally enabled democracy as a threat to everything. And we see the threat of digitally scaled capitalism as, all right, capitalism kind of was maybe okay when it was kept in check as one of a few systems, but now it's like, it's just gonna run amok. So I think they're as shocked at our rejection of what they think of as the American way, as as we are of their rejection of what we think of as as basic enlightenment humanist values. Yeah, well, and some of them are, you know, there's a whole philosophical strand of progressivists who are so committed to the progressive account of the 20th century that they refuse to believe that things could possibly get it, be getting worse. And so think any of any ways that things are getting worse are, yeah, just mere errors in the code that we can correct, but that actually things must be getting better because we're accumulating growth. And how could things not be getting better? That's the definition Mm. of things getting better. So people, there's, there's a lot up in the air right now, and we're going to have to do a better job, those of us on the far left, of being strategic about how we compete in this world of ideas compete it's back to competition well so i guess is. the idea is we'll find the best idea at the earliest possible mm-hmm. stage and <laughs> we just got to find some young kids from palo alto and no right and send out a thousand if we lose 50 whatever it's a price of doing business young bloggers right that was the, this is the, the blogosphere uh, solution no probably won't be able to do that we'll have to actually build uh some kind of community structures intentionally yeah damn dang well that's a team human is for. it's okay right. it'll be fun we're gonna mm-hmm. we're gonna win uh yeah. I'm, I'm trying to like adopt a you know happy warrior orientation towards the struggles of the near future that's exactly that's that's what i started to do in like 2015 16 i was like you know that's what i went team human it's all gonna be okay let's we're go get our you know get rapport solidarity it's gonna be fun the hold hands and it's all, it's all, uh, I mean, if it's going to work, that's what it's going to be. So we right. may as well. That's what I think. Yeah. And so yeah, <laughs> we know what the answer is. So let's start answering. Anyway, yeah. that's the next project. Thank so you. I'll have to come back. Okay. 
Definitely. All right. Well, thank you. Thanks so much for what you do. It's important. You know, you 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 do work harder than I do. You you bring <laughs> you do you well. You're more rigorous. You work differently. You you bring a rigor to this that is you know both refreshing and comforting. It gives people like me ground to stand on. You know, because I I don't feel like I'm just pondering. I feel like oh, this is. You went and did the work. You went and did the <laughs> 600 pages of whatever of work. And it's like, well, thank God. I mean, there's someone young enough. You're still younger. You know, <laughs> you got 20, that, 30 years on me. That Palo Alto system is good for, right? It is, though. No, but you have a, an endurance that because otherwise I would just be out over the fucking edge of the cliff just talking. So thank you for that. And bring some hope into this. You know, you can look into the abyss of history and future and still emerge with 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 hope and uh, a plan for success through solidarity and that's uh that's good to know well thank you much for having me for giving a, a platform to to chat with your listeners i hope they find something in there useful all right definitely all right thank you thank you malcolm thanks for everything thanks douglas and thank you for being on team human Our guest today was Malcolm Harris, author of Palo Alto, A History of California, Capitalism, and the World. You can find it in all forms wherever books are sold or loaned. Team Human was produced by Joshua Chapdelin and edited by Luke Robert Mason. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you've been on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. on a budget quality is non-negotiable that's why quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks italian leather jackets and so much more and the best part about quince they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe ethical and responsible manufacturing elevate your style without the elevated price tag with quince go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 